Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. If you have your Bibles, let's go to James 1. We're going to be in verse 1 today. 1-1, one, one, real simple. If you have your Bibles, we'll start in James 1-1. One, one. We'll pray. We'll get to it. This is how it starts, so don't miss it. It's very short. Ready? Here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's start by praying. God, we ask for your blessing on your word today. We cannot come to you as though we can offer up all that we have and then you look at it and say, thumbs up or thumbs down. God, the only way that we can come to you today is wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We glory in that righteousness. We glory in the person and work of Jesus. We treasure him above all others. There is no one who can save and rescue. There is no one who can help control and guide. There is no one who can feed. There is no one who can lead. There is no one who can sustain and complete and make us whole to the end except for Jesus Christ. And so we ask you, Spirit, to work in us to not be people that look into the perfect law of liberty and walk away forgetting what we saw, but rather we would see ourselves and persevere as we see ourselves in the perfect law of liberty and be doers of the word. So this morning, Lord, as we just introduced the book of James, we ask that you would help us to have open eyes and hearts that would want to see and hear and accept and receive you. God, we ask that you would work in us so that we might obey. My prayer this morning, God, is that you would help us to see and savor you as Lord and Savior and good King. Thank you for what Jordan read this morning from Psalm 34, that we, when we taste and see you, we taste and see that you are good, and that you are sustaining, and that you are all we need. May you use these feeble words to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ so that our lives would be changed to be more like you, making us more whole, that our insides would match our outsides, and that we would proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ to the world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it's been a while since uh, we have preached one verse at a, at a time. Usually we're preaching a section, or perhaps when we get real ambitious, you can preach a whole book at a time. I don't know who would be foolish enough to do that, but we've tried it before. We are going today to work in one verse alone. Uh, when we preach through a passage, what we're trying to do is break it down into its component parts for us to understand what the message of this is, what the communication is to be. Not so that you have a bunch of knowledge and now we can move on to the next thing. But rather, what is the author trying to say to us and what does it mean to us as those who have believed and trust and know Jesus Christ? So I get the opportunity to break this into some smaller pieces to dig in and so that we can get down to some of the nitty-gritty and understand it. Now, our course this morning will be pretty simple. It'll be a very simple structure. We will ask three questions of this verse. 
and then we're going to stand back for a minute and finish by glorying in some of the answers that we find. Real simple. We'll ask three questions of it. We'll get some ramifications, implications, and talk about it. So, as you look there, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. The first question we need to ask, I'll give you three questions. Number one, who is James? Who is this person? Uh, Which of the Jameses in the New Testament is the one that we're seeing here? Or is this even one that we know in the Jesus era? Or was this someone else? We will understand who our author is so that we might correctly understand the relationship that he has with his audience and possibly get more of the feeling that they may have felt as readers, as hearers of this sermon that was written to them. So question number one is who is James? Question number two, if you look on the next thing here, what is this thing that he calls himself a servant? Or translated probably a little closer is slave. Why would he call himself a slave? And Why would he call himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is a very unique construction that he put these things together. Is James showing this? He's a servant of two different eras, of of the God of the Old Testament and then Jesus as he is revealed as well? Or is this some sort of purposeful connection so that we understand the two persons of the Trinity and understand that Jesus actually is God? What's going on with this? Why would he make this construction? So that's number two. Why does James call himself a servant, and why, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Question number three, then, if you see this verse, so James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Who is this audience? Who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Uh, you know, we can understand this, if we take a look a little closer and ask the question, does that mean a specific group within the tribe of Israel? Obviously, he's going to be talking about Israel here, these 12 tribes, Is he talking and assuming that all the 12 tribes are in the dispersion? Or further, what is the dispersion? What is he talking about here? Is this a historical event? Is this some sort of spiritual category? Is this a metaphor? What is James talking about when he says, you are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? So question three, who is the audience? Why does James call them the 12 tribes in the dispersion? Answering these three questions will reveal some wonderful realities for us, so make sure we pick this up. And we all, it will call us then to treasure our rescuer, the one who is not only God, but is God himself incarnate, and the one who fulfills his promises. That's what we'll see here today. Today's lesson, as it were, is not to download some James truth to you. Rather, let me change categories. Today's lesson is not a lesson. Today's worship gathering. We worship together through this time. We receive this food from Jesus Christ himself. So this worship gathering, again, is not about James downloading truth to us. Rather, it's about us, as Jordan read, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Now, you may say, how do we do that from an introductory verse? That's what we'll try to get to. That's my job, is for us to see that and for us to savor Jesus Christ as Lord. So we want to do that then so that we'll turn our hearts to love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. So question number one, who is James? There are a few Jameses in, again, the Jesus era mentioned in Scripture. We have at least three that are really helpful for us to kind of start looking at and to see if that's right. But who are they? We don't really know. We don't have a little book here that tells us all the different people and where they're actually from. So let me try to do something for us. What I'm going to try to do is give you a little bit of the research and some of the reading and the reasons why we would say one of these men is James. 
there is reason to believe that there is one that we're pretty specific about that is the, is the writer of James. You didn't get like a, a download or an email that had James' Outlook you know, contact information on it. So we have to actually take a look at it and see if we can figure out who this is. That being said, we do have a pretty good reason to believe that we know who this is. We have some ideas. So let me give you the three people that possibly could be. You guys know, first of all, James, the son of Zebedee. He's one of the strongest Jameses in the Bible. We know one of the closest to Jesus. He's one of the 12 apostles. The second would be James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also one of the 12. Now, with James, the Alphaeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, however, is also called James the Younger, or even seems like a pejorative term, James the Lesser. Probably because he is lesser known, he is younger and not as prominent. Then we have the third one, James the brother of Jesus. This is also called James the Just. Uh, he's not one of the twelve at all. In fact, he wasn't converted until after the ministry of Christ and after the resurrection. So these are our three possibilities that we know pretty well here. Then we're going to see the rest of the New Testament writings, especially post when we start in Acts and post the Synoptic Gospels, we see this name James pop up over and over again, who is most likely the writer of this epistle that we're talking about here. These are our options. We know from Acts 12 that James, the son of Zebedee, that first option, right, the one that's closest to the Lord, very close to Jesus, he's a brother of John, he's in that inner circle, as it were, with Jesus. He died quite early, actually at the hand of Herod. If you look at that, it was a martyr's death that he was killed. So most likely, he is almost not a possibility in this, that he would have been the author for the early church. So he's out. We know almost nothing about James the Lesser, the son of Alphaeus. He drops out of sight almost completely. We don't see anything else about him in the New Testament. Um, and so again, he's really out. Could you make a, an argument that he possibly, yes, again, we don't have all the last names that he didn't identify himself, but it doesn't make sense either for our reasoning that he would be the guy. So we're left with, not a bad option, because I'll explain, but one that you would think would be not, not the one you would expect. A, one, a person who wasn't even an apostle, he was not one of the original 12, he was during Jesus' time one who doubted and was not converted. However, we know that James and his brothers, again, we not, not only do we know that they mocked him, but in, in John 7, 5, it tells us that not even his brothers believed him. This is James. He did not believe him. Uh, it wasn't until Jesus rose again, I said this before, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Christ comes to him and appears after his resurrection, and James is converted, and he believes. And that being said, all the evidence points to that this man is the one who wrote the letter. Why? Again, like I said, we don't have his contact information, but what we do have is an actual early record from the church fathers. Now, if you know anything about church history, when we say church fathers, these are the pastors, elders, scholars who are post-Jesus Christ and the apostles in the early formation of the church who are working out what it means to be part of the assembly, the ecclesia, the, the church. These men are writing, they're thinking about it, they're preaching, they're proclaiming, they're defending the gospel. When I say church fathers, that's who we're talking about. And we have some of the most early, earliest church leadership claiming that without dispute, James, the just, the brother of Jesus, is the one who wrote this sermon. You may have heard of Origen, an early church father, or perhaps Jerome or Augustine. These all attest that James the just, or James the brother of Jesus, is the one that writes this. All these claim that he has written this and that it is, it is legitimate and genuine. Further, 
From what we do know about James the Just through Scripture, he was uniquely positioned with authority in the early church as an elder at Jerusalem. He was a pastor at Jerusalem. He had the authority to to kind of compose such a work like this that would help the early church. And sometime after his conversion, he becomes what Paul calls a pillar. That's pretty strong language. He uses that in Galatians 2.9. And in the book of Acts, we see him in several places, like I said, but we eventually see him at the Jerusalem Council. And he is one of, the, one of the pillars trying to help the early church trust God and understanding what this means now that we've gone past the law and Jesus Christ has come and he didn't come to abolish the law but rather to fulfill it. And now these new things in the Spirit has come. What does all of that mean? James is at the, at the foundation of several of those decisions to understand and to proclaim that to all of the church, starting in the Council of Jerusalem. Again, like I said, he is not one of the twelve But this does not mean that his work is not authoritative. It does, in fact, line up with the teaching of the apostles. Stacy's talked through this before. We talk about the apostles and their teaching. Really what we mean is the scriptures that are in line with Old Testament, that are in line with Jesus' words, and in line with exactly what God has to communicate to us. And so he has long been considered one of the earliest Christian church writings in the New Testament, this book of James. Again, so after all of that, giving you the reasoning, the answer to question number one would be that it is the brother of Jesus, James the Just, who is writing this letter. He is a pastor, an elder at the church in Jerusalem, and writing this out. This is important for us to understand the context because there's something attached here for us to understand about James specifically as it relates to Jesus. Notice that in this paragraph, he doesn't describe him as Jesus, excuse me, James, the brother of Jesus. This leads us to the second question, which is actually more important. Why would he leave that out? Why would he lead to something else? We find ourselves reading the sermon of a man who knew Jesus better than probably anyone, practically, and rejected him during his lifetime. But not forever, like we said. In his kindness and in his love, Jesus appears to James after his resurrection and brings him salvation. He rescues his brother, He rescues him from sin and death and hell and shows him himself after his resurrection. James is converted from brotherly skeptic to a mature leader of Christ's church who, by the way, eventually succumbs willingly to a martyr's death. This is the James who writes to us in this book. Question two, which leads us right in here. Why then does he not call himself James, the brother of Jesus, himself James, the brother of Jesus, but rather he calls himself a servant? And why does he call himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me first deal with this word servant or slave. This idea has a lot of connotations. It's not new to the New Testament. If you've read your New Testament or sat through preaching, you know that at the beginning of several different books, We see apostles and we see other biblical writers call themselves a slave or a servant of God. This is not new to the New Testament either. It's also even coming from the Old Testament as well. However, what I want to point out are a couple things. Using the word slave, I'm going to just say these three things, connotates three things at least. Ownership. They're not their own. Second, humility and subservience. They are under someone else. And third, Most importantly, I would say, this carries authority. In this, what we're saying is this term reminds the listener that James is owned by someone else. He is not his own. 
and that he does not what he wants to do, but rather what his master wants him to do. He's subservient, humble, submissive to his master. But then third, again, rather and most importantly, I think, that he carries the authority of his master. This is very important for us as the reader. James is not just any old servant, any old slave. Uh, this is, you know, when, if, if we read something and we see that it does just says slave or master, there's very little reason for us to clue in. If we see this, we say, I am writing to you as a slave. Okay. Uh, I am writing to you as a servant. Great. What do you want? But if we attach that to something else, something greater than that servant or slave, we start to have meaning. We start to have a reason and a motivation to listen. If I were to say to you that I received a letter from a secretary, no one would really be that jazzed about hearing what the letter had to say. But if I said to you, I received a letter from the Secretary of Defense of the United States, you would all have a little bit of a different perspective. We may want to hear what he has to say. And so we realize that the person represents something greater than themselves. That's what James is saying. He is a servant. He represents someone greater, someone with great authority, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads us again to this next part of the question. Why does he say that? The construction here that we see, or when I say construction, I mean the way that James puts together these words, especially, again, we're remembering that we're, we're working out of a Greek text. He didn't write this in English. He wrote it out of Greek. And what he's doing there and putting these together is unlike what Paul does, unlike what Peter does, this construction is very different. So it kind of draws our attention to say, why would he say this? Why would he say, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? James declares himself to be a servant of God. That's understood. This is the God of Israel, the God of all creation, the cosmic God. But he expands he expands and goes on to include then, he puts that and and says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ being the Messiah and Lord being God. He uses all three of those terms right in a row. Lord Jesus Christ. And we've used this silly illustration before, but I think it helps us here. If we were to look at, if Jesus had a driver's license, we were to look at it, it would not say first name, Lord, second name or middle name, Jesus, third name or last name, Christ. And oh, people are like, oh, you go by your middle name, Jesus. That's great. Rather, Jesus is his given name by his parents. His title, Messiah, or the anointed one, or the Christ, we're talking about who he is from fulfilling all the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. So when we use Jesus Christ, it's not, Christ is not his last name. And Lord is not the prefix or somehow Mr. Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, what we're seeing is Messiah or Christ is important. Jesus' name has actually a ton of meaning from the Old Testament. That's not the, that's not the purpose here. When he uses the word Lord, though, he is also doing something very important. When he uses the word Lord, he is actually referring to the Lord of glory of all the Old Testament. And therefore, we're seeing Jesus not only as Jesus the Messiah and Savior, but also Jesus the Messiah and Savior and Lord of all creation. He has now placed him in the same category, as it were, in the Godhead. We see him reference God, but then we also see him say, and Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus the Messiah, he is also Lord, and I am his servant. And he is God. There is no difference. He is all of these things. He's a wonderful Messiah. He is a wonderful prophet. He is the word revealed. 
He's all of these things wrapped up and most importantly in the Lord of glory himself. He is Lord. And so in this one statement, James agrees with the rest of the New Testament and as they write and affirm the deity and majesty of Jesus Christ. There's no confusion that this may be like perhaps a simple addition to the Hebrew religion, like, okay, now the Messiah has come, and we're waiting for a couple other things to be fulfilled. No, this is the Messiah who's come, who is the Lord. That meant a great deal to them, and they understood what that meant. James then, for our question number two, James then is a servant owned by another, in submission to another, with authority from another to speak on behalf of God himself expressly revealed to us in Jesus Christ the Lord. This is who James is. This is who he is serving. Uh, All that Jesus says, all that he does, all that he is about holds then the weight of the eternal God to them. They understood that. What they didn't understand is how a man could do that. And so this is early Christian very important doctrine for us. We'll see several times for those who did not believe, it's the seed of heresy. Because they did not believe that he could possibly be Jesus Christ the Lord. They're okay with some of those things, Jesus. They're even okay with maybe Jesus the Messiah. But the Lord, how could he even be God? How could this possibly be? This is very important for us to understand. Move us on to question three then. Who is the audience? Who are these 12 tribes in the dispersion? Of the three questions that we're talking and asking about here, this one probably comes with the most controversy, strangely enough. And uncertainty as to what the exact referent this is. Who is this that he's he's talking to? However, in matters like this, what the best thing for us to do is to understand the normal interpretation of this text, to understand the, the historical setting and what they would mean in that time, and then for us to make sure we apply and understand theologically what he possibly could mean as well. So, we'll start at the beginning. The most natural way to understand this term, the 12 tribes in the dispersion, understand this as a title for those that are separated by geography. We are talking then about a group of Jewish Christians that do not live in Palestine anymore. They are then, in other words, dispersed. They have gone out from where they are supposed to be. They're scattered from their homeland. These are Jewish families who are either longtime heirs of the exile, like we're talking about Old Testament exile, the Babylon, Persia, we're talking about to Assyria. They're possibly heirs of that, or they have been persecuted and driven out of their homeland. These are the families that believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that they now are a part of his church. And this letter then was not to a single congregation. This letter was a whole group of people to different Christian populations, Jewish Christian populations, throughout many different regions. And in other words, it was written to the early church. How can I say that? Remember, it wasn't really until after the Jerusalem Council that a few began preaching to the Gentiles. It went first to the Jews, and then the wonder and the mystery was that Jews and Gentiles could be together in Christ. So the vast majority of believers in the early church were certainly Jewish Christians. They had all the background to understand what that meant. But, so the, the, again, and then the basic normal way of understanding this group's identity is to understand them as Jewish Christians away from their homeland. Besides this title, we really have no clear information about who they are specifically. Again, we don't have their contact information. We don't have their rundown. We're not exactly sure. 
We do know, however, that they were under some sort of economic prejudice. Remember, we read last week, and you said, see over and over, the rich and the poor, the rich and the poor, and the rich and the poor, over and over again. This is a group of people that's away from their homeland. They are away from the laws of their land. They're away from their national culture. They're away from their brotherhood that is in Israel. There is some sort of persecution, and some of it is perhaps physical, but probably more likely we're talking about social or economic pressures and persecution. These people are weary and tired and hurting, and they probably want to give up. They're probably sick of living away from there and being exiles. These are Jewish Christians who are outside of their geographical homeland and dealing with the ramifications. But there is more to this. This is certainly a sermon written by James, a Jewish Christian, to other Jewish Christians, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. But for us to stop there and leave it there is to leave us hanging and to borrow from Jewish Christian tradition and its meaning and feeling as though this really wasn't for us, but we can, we can gain from it. You know what I'm going to say. This is for us. What, is right, what, right, excuse me, what right do we have then to say that this is for us? I would argue that not only is it our Scripture because we can generally learn from it, and any other believer can, and they should learn from Scriptures, but rather we will find in the address that we find ourselves described. Why? This is not new to us. If you've read 1 Peter, Jordan read chapter 2 this morning, but if you go back to 1-1, the initial thing that he says, he calls the entire church Jewish and Gentile, the entire Christian church, he calls them, and I quote, the elect exiles of the dispersion. Later on, Paul, in other places, he calls in Galatians, he calls the church sons of Abraham in 3.7 Galatians. And then Galatians 6.16, he calls them the Israel of God. Paul, Peter, and now James are using terms that Jewish Christians understood well to describe New Testament people of God, faith in Christ people, Gentile believers. They are God's exiles in the dispersion. One of my children asked me this great question and gave me a really insightful answer. If April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? The answer is pilgrims. Yeah. Yeah, you won't forget it, though, I know. I'm not talking about buckles on shoes and white knee-high tights and like a weird fedora. I'm not talking about that kind of a pilgrim. What we're talking about, though, is the actual definition of understanding what a pilgrim is. I'm talking about us being people who journey here on earth toward a heavenly home. I'm talking about seeing our entire world and all its individual countries as temporary but important living space for those who look forward to our real home. Understanding that we too are exiles puts us squarely in the category of pilgrim while we are here on this earth. That should mean something to you. The writer of Hebrews uses the same language when he describes in Hebrews 11.13, he points out to the, that those who walk in faith are strangers and exiles on this earth. His words, not mine. James's address is to those of us who look for a better country. Again, not my words. A homeland where we will finally join together with our king under his rule and reign. This puts us in the middle of pressure, in persecutions, in the things that were like were going on in the exiles that we see all through the Old Testament as well. Israel's struggle in exile was real. 
but it also foreshadowed what the writer of Hebrews was trying to explain. All of the church struggles as they walk in faith as pilgrims on this pilgrim path to gain their heavenly home. We are the Lord's people, redeemed by the blood of lamb, but not home yet. We are not there. This is not your home. You are pilgrims on a journey. We are looking for a better country. So the answer to question number three, who is the audience or why do they go by this name, the 12 tribes in the dispersion? We believe that due to the makeup of the early church, like I said, James is writing to Jewish Christians outside of Palestine, but that the address isn't limited only to this group. This is, again, for us to understand also from the surrounding texts that glare this, the fact that we are also being referenced here as Gentile believers. It also includes us as Gentile believers as exiles on this earth. So, we have answered our questions. We understand how to move now into the book of James. We have what was called a context. So now as we start speaking towards this, we start reading verse 2 and on. Oh, okay. We know who James is, who he's writing to, kind of. We know these people. Uh, we know a little bit about why he called himself. We understand the authority that he carries. But to stop here would be to miss the opportunity to preach this text as Christian scripture. Now, you may have no idea what I'm talking about. When I say that there is more here than just what you see in these, I don't know, 25 words, I'm not saying that there's a hidden meaning to the text. I am not saying this. What I am saying is this. The fact that Jesus Christ means something to us in faith, knowing and loving and treasuring him, this text comes alive to us. I want to show you how. I have three things for you, following the exact same three points of how you and I can see and taste and see that the Lord is good out of these three simple things. Number one, James, who we talked about, the brother of Jesus, was turned from a doubting brother to a convert and a committed church leader and servant of Jesus Christ. If we don't get this, that's the power of the gospel at work. He went from someone who was against and mocked his brother, who we all probably would do the exact same thing, by the way, to one who is not only willing to preach Christ, but to die for him. He won't even call himself the brother in his address. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ because his life has totally been changed. Do you see that Christ was able to reach into his mocking brother's heart and pull him away from death and save him? He rescued him. Don't miss that, believer. We can savor that, the fact that he is able to do that. Our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, can reach into dead hearts and save them. He can rescue us from sin. And so we look at James as one of many examples of God's mercy and his work at turning stone-cold hearts of men to living, fleshly hearts that follow after him and that love them with all their heart, soul, and mind. That's our first thing. That'd be enough. But the second thing, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is, as we talked about, the exact imprint of his nature. Go back to Colossians 1 and read all that glorious passage that Christ is the Christ. That he is not only Jesus the Messiah, he is Jesus the Messiah and Lord. That has great ramifications for us. He was not just a man, although he was a man. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was able to take our sin. 
This is a glorious truth that we must relish in, we must think about, we must worship about, because we can't even get it. But when we do start to understand, and he teaches us this, we realize that because he was that, that we have great, great hope. Because he was a high priest like us, in the sense that he could actually pay for our sins. He was the sacrifice and the priest, whoever intercedes for us now before the throne of the Father. So Jesus is not just Jesus a servant, or Jesus just the prophet, or just whatever. He is Jesus Christ the Lord. This is glorious. The last thing. This letter is to us. Man, I feel like I'm making this thing so loud, sorry. This letter is to us. Jesus cares about his church as it is in the world, and it's on its pilgrimage. We already made this point about who are the 12 tribes. It certainly is to the Jewish Christians, but it is certainly to us. We are in exile. We are looking for a better country. I hate that stupid not-of-this-world symbol on the back of cars, but man, it's right. It's right. We are not of this world. He has called us to something far greater. And one day, church, we will be united with him. All together. Perhaps some of us will pass on before that. We don't know when he comes back. When you pass from this life to the next, as many have gone on before, actually all have gone on before us who have died, they will meet him as he is and see him face to face. But we will one day not be exiles, but we will be drawn back together to know him face to face. That is glorious. That is something to be excited about, not because we just hype ourselves up. It's reality. It's going to happen. It's not something I think is going to happen. Unless you, again, if you're not in faith and you disbelieve, repent. But if you believe, the scriptures say it's going to happen. We are exiles. So, brothers and sisters, from this one introductory verse, let us glory in the fact that he saved people like James and like us, by the way. And that he can and will do so to the end of time until he has gathered all his elect. That's the third point I'm jumping to. He will gather all his elect. And we will glory in that. Let these things change us then so that our affections and our treasurer, our little heart, will not be enamored by this stupid stuff around us. Our jobs, wealth, pleasure, comforts of this pilgrimage home. It doesn't matter in that regard. Let us glory rather in Jesus Christ who's made all these things and giving meaning to all these things and will one day bring us together with him. Let us treasure Christ this way. Let's pray. God and Father, thank you for the book of James, reminding us once again of who you are and who we are as your people. Thank you, Father, for feeding us through your word. God, we cannot, we cry out like the man in Mark 9. We believe, but help our unbelief. We realize who you are, but it's so easy for us to walk away from the mirror and not look at ourselves anymore and forget. Would you help us in these three little things to remember who you are and what you've done and that we would taste and see that the Lord is good? And would you have our heart? Would you have our whole heart, our whole minds, our whole soul, every part of us, God? Would we be given over to you and the worship of you? May you do this work in our hearts. We, We plead with you. We can't do this. We thank you for the encouragement you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.